Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Right now, my mobile phone won't run even the camera app. The old PC I produce the show on freezes up several times a day and my audio recorder adds a white noise hiss to everything. I had to spend a few hours this week filling in the gaps where this very episode was corrupted on the hard disk. Only to find I couldn't save the Audacity project file. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, bionic eyes, traffic analysis and duorama. But first up, here's the news. Phone keys stolen. Edward Snowden's leaked documents have revealed that America's National Security Agency, the NSA, and Britain's Government Communications Headquarters, GCHQ, have gained the ability to illegally listen in to mobile phone calls without a wiretapping warrant, because they've stolen the encryption keys. They stalked the engineers at Gemalto, the Dutch manufacturer of most mobile phone SIM cards in the world, to get the information to break into Gemalto computers so they could steal all the encryption keys. With these keys, there's no trace that your phone was ever hacked, so they can't get caught. They can tap into your phone calls, read your texts, and monitor your data use without a warrant, with impunity. They can also use the keys to look at mobile phone data they've had stored away for years, and decrypt it at their leisure. Gemalto sell 2 billion SIM cards every year, and also make the chips used in credit cards and passports. Could they also have been a target? They read the Gemalto engineers' emails and Facebook posts using the X-Keyscore tool that decodes network packets siphoned off from the big internet cables. They paid particular attention to engineers' emails that were encrypted, reasoning that those may be the ones that contain sensitive information that they could exploit. Sure enough, they eventually found the information that let them break into the Gemalto computers and steal everything they wanted. The Australian federal government's proposed data retention and new anti-terror laws could make these criminal behaviours legal. All the Five Eyes Alliance countries of America, Canada, Britain, Australia and New Zealand are trying to legalise the criminal activities of their spy agencies. The major Australian phone service providers, Telstra, Optus and Vodafone, have confirmed that they used Aramto SIMs, but they haven't made any statements about recalling them to replace them with more secure SIMs. 
Last year, the New York Times revealed that the Australian Signals Directorate, ASD, had obtained nearly 1.8 million phone encryption keys from Indonesian phone company Telkomsel, so that they could spy on Indonesians for commercial gain. The documents showed that the Australian Signals Directorate had been spying on American lawyers hired by the Indonesian government for trade talks with America. Australian spies committing industrial espionage for a foreign power. The Australian spooks did this to let the American government get around the law, stopping the US from spying on its own citizens without a warrant. It's so easy. You just ask a foreign power to spy on your citizens. Treason, by definition, and then have them share the results with your spy agency. This kind of treason is how the whole Five Eyes Alliance works. Let's be clear, this spying was not to protect America's security or Australia's security. It was purely to cheat at trade talks for financial gain. It's organised crime disguised as national security. What can you do about it other than lobbying your government to stop breaking the law and not to pass data retention laws? On Android phones, you can send encrypted text using the free Text Secure app and make encrypted phone calls using the Red Phone app. Of course, if the spies notice that they can't read or hear your communications, you'll attract their attention. And they may go after your emails and web browsing history. The new laws will let them plant files on your hard drive and then find these as evidence to convict you of crimes. You could always encrypt your emails and browsing sessions, and you probably should. Spies in your files. The antivirus company Kaspersky has discovered that a group they label Equation, who are very likely part of the NSA, broke into over a dozen of the major hard drive manufacturers in America and stole the source code for the firmware that drives the mechanism of the hard drives. The hard drive's equivalent of an operating system. This has allowed them to develop malware that infects almost any hard drive, to let them remotely read, alter or copy the contents of your hard drive. Or even remotely delete anything or everything. The software's been tracked back to at least 2007, and they've had access ever since. As the nasty software is installed in hidden parts of your hard drive, you could delete the contents and reformat the drive, but the infection would still be there. The malware uses a lot of the techniques found in the Stuxnet worm, which is strongly suspected to be an asset of the NSA. As the malware adapts itself to suit the different brands of hard drives, using commands only known to the manufacturers, the writers had to have had inside information. Kaspersky found the virus on data CDs distributed from a scientific conference in 2009 and later on USB memory sticks. In 2013, based on Snowden leaks, De Spiegel wrote that the NSA runs an Office of Tailored Access Operations, TAO, which specialises in intercepting deliveries of new computer equipment. This is an ideal way to infect a victim's hard drives without ever having to break into the victim's actual offices. Instead, you grab the packages before they're delivered and tamper with them before letting them continue to where they were meant to go. The malware lives in hidden sectors of your hard drive, so the only way to stop the infection is to destroy the hard drive with a hammer or kill it in a fire. 
You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. On Friday last week, the National Information Communications Technology Australia Agency, NICTA, held its Open Day TechFest. I first spoke with David Gambrell, a business relationship manager for NICTA in Canberra. He was in front of the Intelligent Transport Systems Research Display. I began by asking him to tell me about Intelligent Transport Systems. So one of the challenges we have in Canberra is our public transport system, particularly after hours, so weeknights and weekends, getting it efficient, getting service when people want it. And so we've come up with a a multimodal approach to improving the transport system. And that is uh, we'll run buses on a backbone network, a high frequency route. Um, And instead of having buses running around the suburbs and maybe hitting their bus stops once an hour or so, People will be able to call ahead, um, either through a call centre or using an app on their phone, um, and have a pickup from a multi-hire taxi uh, from the bus stop in within 10 minutes. So people would get a taxi from near their home to the nearest bus stop, and then the bus would go along between a, a more prescribed and therefore faster route. So yeah, so um, they'd actually get the cab from the bus stop that they would normally pick the bus up from, and then that cab would then take them to a hub where the buses are running uh, between the different hubs on a high frequency route. And they just pay for their bus ticket? Just pay for the bus ticket. This sounds like the sort of thing that might be hard for people to understand that getting a taxi isn't a luxury. (laughs) That's right. And So there's some work to be done yet with the taxi industry and uh, and with the buses and so forth uh, and the the different stakeholder groups. but it's all about the user experience. So we want to get a more convenient, um, uh, almost on-demand transport system really delivered cost-effectively. So faster and cheaper, and the taxi drivers and the bus drivers win. Correct. More work for the more work for the taxi industry. Uh, more efficient work for the bus industry. Everybody wins. Everybody wins. Sounds wonderful. Thank you. My pleasure. That was David Gambrell, business relationship manager from NICTA talking about intelligent transport systems. Next, I spoke with Nick Barnes, a senior principal researcher at NICTA, working on the bionic eye. We're interested in prosthetic vision devices, so devices to restore a sense of vision in people who've lost it due to vision loss. The particular part of that we're interested in is in vision processing. So if you have a device that includes a camera and that device in some way will stimulate the person's sensory system, what you can do with the camera images to make sure that what they see in their sensory perception has the key information that they need to un- to perform tasks. So how can we process those images to make sure that the key information there is there to, to, to handle tasks that they're doing? So you've got... Um, looks like there's two devices I saw displayed here. Yep. So you've got a retinal implant that you've been working on for ages. Can you yep. tell me a bit about the retinal implant, please? Yep. So with the retinal implant, the retinal implant is an implant that goes um, within the eye. Um, it's electrically stimulating. So it sits somewhere near the retina. So in patients who are blind from several diseases like retinitis pigmentosa and age-related macular degeneration, they tend to lose um, photoreception, so photoreceptive cells, but still have part the rest of their retinas largely intact. 
So you can use electrical stimulation to actually trigger off those cells, much in the way a cochlear implant um, triggers the, the cochlea. So we were involved and in the study with Bionic Vision Australia, where we implanted a, an electrode device into three patients, no. and we did vision processing with those patients. And in those sorts of studies, we showed that vision processing can actually help. So just as well as the device itself, which is very important, just by adding appropriate processing and making sure the key information is preserved and not ambiguous, you can improve the patient results. So you're basically extracting as much useful information out of what the sensors can actually see to give to the person who's using it. Yeah, so it's all about the task that they're doing and making sure that the appropriate information is there for, for what they need to undertake. So in work we've been doing, we're interested in can they avoid obstacles that are on the ground? So we can use computer vision processing to identify where the ground is, where those obstacles are, and then make sure that when they look to an obstacle, that's apparent in their visual display, that that doesn't get lost in amongst the other information. And we've shown in simulation studies that that's helpful, and we've tried that out with patients as well. And so, yes, that particular implant study concluded last year. This year we're starting, we're doing uh, two new studies that we're working There's a new activity. study funded by the NHMRC the that's going to implant a, a new retinal implant device along with the Centre for Eye Research Australia and the Bionics Institute. And secondly, we've developed a Vibramat device which has a series of vibration motors that allows people to understand a visual scene via tactile feedback on their back. And we think that's interesting as well for people who aren't suitable for a retinal implant or and it's a non-surgical solution. So we think both ways are, inter are, are technologies that may potentially be helpful. And the problem in terms of vision processing is the same problem. And the Viramat, that's based on technology, what, from the 1980s? Because I remember seeing pictures of it in a book in the 80s. Yeah, so the, the original studies for sensory substitution were around the 60s. Back in those days, there were the, the, the actual device was within a modified dentist chair and they were using large power units and solenoids to do it. And those things aren't terribly portable and they're very limited in the amount of information they can portray. So they showed really interesting results for those, but the technology really limited the device because we think these things are particularly useful potentially for mobility and you can't do mobility in a dentist chair. So. What we've been doing is looking at more recent technology around coin vibration motors, the type of vibrators you have in mobile phones, and those are much lighter weight and lower power, and so you can have a portable device. And if you use those sort of devices, does it become more intuitive? Like I've read about little ones on the tongue that have been used yeah. by American soldiers. So their brains adapted so that they could practically see with those sort of devices. Does that happen with this? Yeah, certainly. So in general for these kind of tactile sensory substitution devices, and that includes the tongue implant, so there's a group called the BrainPort, which is the tongue device in the US, people adapt to it, so they get better at it and get better at discriminating the information over time. So it's very much around having some experience with the device. So yes, people, people do get better. We're not at a stage where we've done those studies yet. We're at a, we've, we've got our device and we've got our, our vision processing and we think we can help by, by presenting more useful information on the device rather than general. But yes, we would anticipate that you get some adaptation over time and, and, and better at understanding what's presented. So the Vibramat is obviously a little bit less complex than your retinal implant. 
how long do you think it'll take for these things to be developed? Because it's obviously a, they're both, well, it's a difficult project. Yes, an advantage with something like a Vibromat is it's not an implantable device. So it's not, there's not as much risk involved and there's not surgery involved. So it's, a, it's, it's an easier thing to do in that sense. In terms of actually showing that the device is effective, is safe, it's, it's easier. In terms of showing effective, there's a similar process of actually looking at tasks and how people can work with it. I mean, there's implantable visual prosthetics are, are around today. There are devices that can do this to some limited extent. The question's more, when can those devices start alleviating and providing independent living to people? And that's the kind of thing we're, we're keenly interested in is what can we do in vision processing to address that? And I think that's a few years away before we can really start, start showing and understanding how to do that. But I think it's, it's a, a, a few years is where I'd put the, put the number at the moment. <laughs> yeah, we're at a really interesting stage with this project. We really think that these, these kind of technologies, we're showing that they can help with tasks. So we're, we're seeing that vision processing can play a role in these things. And the next few years is going to be really interesting. I think, I think we're going to see some of these, these kind of technologies deployed. And I think we're going to see over the next few years devices out there for, for people with low vision that are making a difference. Nick Barnes, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Thanks. That was Nick Barnes talking about NICTA's research on visual processing for the bionic eye. And finally, I spoke with Chris Cooper, a senior software engineer for NICTA working on the Duorama project. I began by asking him, what is Duorama? Duorama is a public website that enables you to upload GPS tracks of activities that you've participated in outdoors. You upload them to the website and you automatically get a 3D visualisation generated of that activity. The 3D visualisation you can augment with other media such as um, synchronised video or photos or text annotations. And because it's all web-based, it's very easy to share these visualisations with friends on social media. Part of what we've done through the service is integrate the Oculus Rift. So this enables you to kind of get within the 3D visualisation and look around, particularly for flying activities, it gives you a little sense of what it was like to be out there flying at the time. So you put on the Oculus Rift and you get a full immersive experience of what it was like to fly? Yeah, so it's a little like you're in a helicopter following along behind whatever activity has gone on. So if you're flying, it's like you're flying alongside. Um, if, if it's someone on the ground, then it's like you're following them um, in, a, in a helicopter. So is this using Google Earth or what sort of, where does the visual information come from? So we're using an open source virtual globe called Cesium. In some ways it's similar to Google Earth, but it is running directly within a web browser. And because it's open source, it means the whole code base is publicly available and can be extended and modified for custom purposes like what we're doing here. So it's a great project if you want to learn more about 3D mapping within a browser. Because it runs directly within Chrome, Chrome or Firefox, it means that anything you create, it's very easy to publicise that to a wide audience because it's all web-based. And where do people find this on the web? Cesiumjs.org is where you find Cesium. If you want to have a look at Duorama, it's duorama.com. And 
yeah, I guess um, we're from Nicta, so nicta.com.au as well. But for the moment, people can't get on Oculus Rift to play with this side of things? Um, it is possible to purchase the developer's kit. So if you are a developer, by all means, you can get a developer's kit. But if you're more of an end user, it's better to wait off for the production version where, whenever they release that. So what we're demoing here today is the second developer's kit. They've just released the third developer's kit. Like I say, if you're an end user, probably hold off for the final product. Please try out Duorama.com, upload some GPS tracks. They can be as simple as bike rides or walks. And if you've got an Instagram or YouTube account, then you can synchronize photos or video to go along with it. So. Awesome. Well, Chris Cooper, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. That was Chris Cooper talking about the Duorama project at Nikta. You can find out more at duorama.com and nikta.com.au. <laughs> And now some Diffusion community announcements. Coming up in Sydney. March 1st is Future Day, a way of focusing, celebrating the energy that more people around the world are directing towards a radically better future. Organise a Future Day event in your town. Find out more at futureday.org. On March 11th, Inspiring Science at Ultimo Library. Discover the role cholesterol plays in helping our cells go about their day-to-day -day business with Dr. Blake Cochran and learn about why the microbial communities in your gut are beneficial to your health with Dr. Mark Reed. Making Community Makerspaces and Hands-on Engagement On March 20th at the Makers Place in the Italian Forum in Leichhardt, Sydney, Mel Fuller of Makers Place and Joy Suleiman of Irresistible Learning are teaming up to help libraries and community organisations bring what's best about maker culture to their community engagement and learning programs. Joy Suleiman will be facilitating a robust and purposeful dialogue about maker culture. Speakers will be sharing our best practices, examples, tips, networks, and lessons learned from experience. The Rockstar lineup of experts includes Warham Cheatham from City Libraries Townsville, Dr. Gareth Jenkins, coordinator of youth development at Save the Children Australia, Grant Young from the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence, Alexia Estrelado, Program Manager of Deluxe Media Arts, Daniel Green from the Sydney Mini Maker Fair, James Oliver, the Digital Learning Manager at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. If you're a librarian or community group member who wants to explore the world where technology and manufacturing are for all humans, come along on March 20th to Maker's Place. There'll be links to those events on the Diffusion episode page. In the laboratories of your name here, there is a modest sign. And here, dedicated scientists face the challenge. Years of heartbreaking failures and setbacks only stiffen their resolve to conquer the problem. And one day, a strange and historic accident. Uh-oh. Well, you did it again. Gee, what a mess. Oh, well. Wait a minute. Maybe... Listen.
By Gad, do you suppose this freak accident? Of course. That's it. That's the answer. We've done it. After all these years, we've invented it. How about that? Oh, no, no. That's no kind of a thing to say. This has got to be some sort of a line that'll get quoted, like, uh... Well, how about this? What has God wrought? Good. Good. Beautiful. Let me get that down. And with those historic words, the search was over. From the laboratories of Your Name Here had come the key to the secret that had baffled man through the ages. No longer a dream, but a reality was your product here. Now, for the first time, limitless horizons open for the nation. A brighter future unfolded. Thanks to your name here, employment boom. Not only in the vast modern facilities of your name here, but in factories everywhere geared to supply this vital new industry that is reshaping our economy and transforming the lives of millions. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2XX in Canberra, and 3NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio Search station. Was also on astronomy.fm. From the laboratories you can now hear Diffusion your name on Stitcher. Here. Radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from Stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links and photos from this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, The Man Who Changed His Mind by Chinstrap Music.
what we're doing here. So 